Thanks very much, Ian, for reading. I understand that unusual biblical names are fashionable these days. If anyone's looking for inspiration, can I recommend Us and Buzz for your first, <laughs> for your first two? And you've got um, ten other choices in that little paragraph alone. Um, it's lovely to um, be with you this morning. My name's Mark, I'm the trainee minister here, and it'd be really helpful if you could uh, keep that passage open in front of you for the next uh, 25 minutes. Not least because I imagine you're still trying to make sense of it. What exactly are we to make of a God who tells his friend to sacrifice his own son? Bearing in mind this is the same God that we've gathered to worship this morning. Because he might well be here, not as a Christian, in which case, welcome. And I imagine you might well be even more confused. You might be suspecting that this passage reveals God to be the, the monster you sometimes fear he is. Of course, the story we've just read is so unbelievably strange that in a sense it argues for its truth. If I was trying to make up a religion that would gain loads of followers, or make myself look good, or frankly make God look good, I certainly wouldn't invent a story like this. I can't imagine why anyone would invent a story like this. And yet here it is, in God's word, demanding to be listened to. So, uh, let's listen to it in all its strangeness. Young people, you've got a little booklet, I think, that will help you uh, stay on, on the curve. The first thing this chapter tells us is that there will be times when God's commands seem to make no sense. When they seem to go against all his purposes. Faith means paying a perplexing price. See that on your word sheets, which might help you keep track of where we are. We've been warned that God's testing Abraham. Verse 2 still hits us like a gut punch, doesn't it? Take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac. Go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him as a burnt offering. Be bad enough. But God has said, do not shed the blood of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. God's already said that. So what is he doing? And God makes it abundantly clear throughout the Bible that he hates human sacrifice. So what is he doing? Even more shockingly, this isn't just any old child. This is the child whom the entire plot of the last ten chapters has been working towards. God promised Abraham descendants, didn't he? And he was already old. And then God kept Abraham waiting for, for 25 years. Repeating and repeating and repeating. 
Emily Isaac's born. Sarah's 90. Extraordinary. It's a miracle. Party time. This is the son through whom all the nations of the world are going to be blessed. And then suddenly Abraham's being asked to give Isaac up. He's been asked to, to set the whole plan back to square one. In fact, he's being asked to torpedo the plan forever. As God expressly said in chapter 21, verse 12, through Isaac, shall your offspring be reckoned. So what, what is he doing? Now, I want to be absolutely clear that God is never, ever going to tell any of us to take the life of one of our own children. For reasons that will become crystal clear before the end of this talk. And because we have in the Bible, which God will never contradict, a much clearer revelation of God's will than Abraham said. Children, I know some of you might be feeling confused right now, but God is never ever going to say to your parents what he said to Abraham. But God did say what he said. And there are times when obedience to God's clear commands seems to go against everything he's been planning. Take Kathy, for instance. Imagine she's a, a member here, and she's got a, a work colleague called Ben, whom she's had a number of good conversations with Jesus about. And Ben's even come along to church two or three times. It really looks like God might be doing something. Um, but Ben has a sister who's married to another woman. And one day he asks Kathy, well, you're not one of those crazy Christians who say same-sex marriage is wrong, are you? And she fights a terrible battle there. The, the temptation to lie, or at least to obfuscate. She knows what God's word says on the subject. She knows that if she tells the truth, it might well mean the end of her friendship with Ben. It might well mean the end of any chance that he might come along to church again. Can that possibly be God's will? Eventually she plucks up the courage. She says, yes, it is wrong. And it's not whether I say so that's important. It's that God says Sure enough, ben, ben doesn't explode and he doesn't try and get a fire or anything, but there are no more water cooler conversations about Jesus after that. Kathy prays, God, what? What are you doing? I, I knew what you were asking me to say, but it just seems to have gone against everything you were doing. I thought you wanted everyone to be saved. Well, Abraham can't understand either why God would torpedo his own purposes. But he goes ahead and he does what God says. Isn't it extraordinary in verse 3? The very next morning. It's an extraordinary command. It's an extraordinary response. And, and this is where we see the absolute triumph of faith. It's the absolute triumph. It's the absolute climax of the whole Abraham narrative. You know, we've seen Abraham time and time again fail to believe that God will keep his promises. We've seen him take matters into his own hands. It comes to the hardest test of all and Abraham passes with flying colours. 
This is faith, isn't it? Abraham does what God says, even though it looks like it's going to completely destroy God's promises. Because he knows that God will, in fact, keep the promises anyway. Here are some remarkable verses from Hebrews 11, at the other end of the Bible. They're on your sheets, on page two. They shed light on what Abraham was thinking. God says in Hebrews 11, By faith Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, It is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. So in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. Abraham's logic is very simple. God has said that Isaac will have countless descendants. Therefore he will. If I kill Isaac, which God has quite clearly told me to do, then God will simply have to make to raise him from the dead. But God's quite capable of that. Abraham is being asked to believe in the resurrection of the dead. It's an extraordinary thing. But it's, it's not blind faith. He's being asked to believe an extraordinary thing on the basis of extraordinary evidence. Imagine if, if this was the first thing God had said to Abraham. No chance. It's not, is it? Abraham's got 25 years of experience of God's faithfulness by this point. 25 years of God keeping his promises. Even when Abraham messes up time and time and time again. 25 years of God bringing life out of deadly and, 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 and desperate situations. There's been the battle, there's been uh, the judgment on Sodom, there's been the scrape with Pharaoh, there's been the scrape with Bimelech. And, and most impressive of all, Abraham has already seen God bring life out of death. Because Sarah, sadly, painfully, had been, been unable to have children. And, now she's, and then she was far too old. It, it, it was a dead situation. And, and yet God brought new life. So Abraham knows that death is no barrier to God. Hence, verse 5, to the servants, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there We'll worship, and we will come back to you. That's faith, isn't it? What about us, when we're struggling to trust? When it looks like obedience will only lead to death? Is there anything we can look back to in our own lives, in the span of history? which proves that God raises the dead? Is there anything we can look back to that proves that God brings new life? That he knows how to turn the tables? That when it looks like he really isn't going to keep his promises, he will bring life out of a dead situation? Is there anything at all that we can look back to? We, maybe 2,000 years ago, 
we, ha we have a lot more to go on than Abraham did. Abraham knows God can raise the dead. And so verse 8. After three days of silent agony, as the hundred-year-old man and his, his precious son slowly climb the hill, the son is staggering under the weight of the wood on which he's going to die. The father is just staggering. His heart's nearly bursting out of his chest. His hand is gripping the knife, slippery with sweat. He trusts God. And so he says, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And they keep climbing and he trusts God and he knows God can raise the dead. And he tells himself over and over again that he does trust God, that he's seen what God can do. He can only climb so slowly. Eventually they reach the place, builds the altar and he arranges the wood and he does trust God to raise the dead. Does he trust God? He binds Isaac, he lays him on the altar, he thinks of the promises, he trusts God, he knows he loves God, he knows he loves Isaac. His hands are shaking, his heart is harrowing, his eyes are streaming, the boy, the boy is crying, he trusts God, he trusts God. His mouth is dry, does he trust God? Why does he have to prove it? He reaches out his hand and he takes the knife and he trusts God and the blade begins to fall. Abraham! Abraham! Here I am. Do not lay a hand on the boy. Do not do anything to him. I know that you fear God. Because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. What faith. James says in chapter 2, Abraham's faith was made complete by what he did. Let's be clear, we are saved by faith alone. No human work can pay for sin. But real faith is never alone. It always expresses itself through love. If Abraham had refused the command, he would have shown that he didn't really trust God. He would have shown that his faith was a faith of the lips only, which is no faith at all. Real faith is demonstrated by its decisions. You might remember the story of Blondin and the tightrope. Do you really believe that I can safely wheel someone in this wheelbarrow across this canyon? Yes, that's faith of the lips. Okay then, get in the wheelbarrow. That's faith of action. Faith does what God says even when it can't see why, even when it will never be able to see why. And now he knows. Abraham fears God more than he loves his greatest earthly love. And that is why God repeats the promises in verses 16 to 18. Because God is thrilled. God is delighted. Of course, in one sense, the promises are totally unconditional. Abraham had all these promises before he'd done anything for God. But in another sense, verse 16, there's that little word, because, because you have done this, I will surely bless you. Promises had to be received by faith. And real faith, real embracing of the promises always produces radical sacrifice. So good works are necessary for salvation, not to pay for it, but as evidence of faith. Because of these good works, which God himself has prepared for Abraham to do, 
God can reassure him that he will inherit the promises. And it is glorious. And so may it be with us. Of course, if we're talking about the sacrifices that faith makes, we could talk about any area of the Christian life. Most of us have no idea what God is going to ask of us in the next ten weeks, in the next ten years. But there is one area which particularly stands out from this passage, isn't there? We may be relatively comfortable making sacrifices ourselves, but we're much more hesitant to make our children make sacrifices. Abraham being asked to give up all his money, for instance, well, sure, but being asked to do anything that might cause pain to his child? Well, that, that's where we draw the line. Of course, we will never be asked to take our, Christian, our children's lives. I cannot say that enough. Abraham was asked to put God's will before what appeared to be the immediate well-being of his own son. And so are we. Now I know that I am saying this as someone without children myself. So you, you have to take it from the Bible, not just from me. And children as well. I am sorry for speaking to your parents about their relationship with you while you are in the room. But feel free to talk to me about it afterwards. Feel free to talk to your parents about it afterwards. Let's try and make sense of this together. But God's call includes all areas of life. And we can think, well, I can't. My children have to make their own decisions. If they don't want to come to church, if they don't want to be known as Christians at school because they get bullied, well, then we shouldn't make them. And obviously, children do grow in responsibility for their own souls as they grow older. And the extent to which we make decisions for them rightly decreases. But we are called to model what a life of sacrifice for Christ looks like. And to bring up our children in that way of life. And there will be a real cost to bringing up our children to fear God. The football team, we prevent them joining because it trains on Sunday mornings. The cost of time and energy in, in reading the Bible and praying with kids who might sometimes uh, not want to. Uh, the pain, of, uh, the pain for both parties of, of good discipline when, when our children stray from the way. The grades they fail to get because they've prioritised Sundays or rooted or something else, rather than spending every spare minute on the, the academic hamster wheel. Uh, the pain of watching our, our children get bullied at school for believing all these weird things. Now our love for our children is so strong that even making them make those small sacrifices can at times feel like we're putting them to death. But if I might paraphrase Jesus, whoever wants to save their child will lose them. But whoever is prepared to, quote, lose their child for me and for the gospel will save them. Children are natural imitators. Modelling to them, teaching them to make little sacrifices for God now. Will set them up to make bigger sacrifices for him later. Which is, is the goal, is it not? This is a weighty call, and one in which we're all painfully aware of having fallen short. But let's turn now, secondly, more briefly, but just as importantly, we're going to turn to the astonishing generosity of God in this chapter. We're going to turn, we're going to flip from the faith that God calls us to, to the faithfulness that he shows us. 
We're going to turn from a price demanded to a price paid. Now, when I was young, I was a lamentably logical child, and I was put out by the section about the ram. Why is there a ram? Couldn't we just have stopped at verse 12? God's revealed that the whole thing was a test. He said, well done. He's revealed the depth of Abraham's faith for millennia to come. Why does there need to be a sacrifice? Can't Abraham just go? And yet, the truth seems to be that there does need to be a sacrifice on Mount Moriah. You see, there is one reason why God's command to Abraham wouldn't have seemed quite so strange. Wouldn't have seemed quite so disturbing. Because the truth is that we do all deserve to die for our sin. Life, especially Isaac's life, which was so miraculously provided. Life is a gift, and God is free to recall the gift whenever he chooses. And it is true, ultimately, that only human life can pay for human sin. So there is a kind of terrible logic to God's command. Sin has to be paid for. But when Abraham gets to the pitch, to the summit of his faith. He finds that sacrifice has been provided for him. He said to Abraham, he said to Isaac, God will provide the, the lamb. God, God does. And so Abraham offers up the ram in the place of his firstborn. And you can tell that he gets it because what does he call the place? Does he call it Abraham passes the test? Does he call it Abraham's faith? Does he call it God's very strange command? He calls it the Lord will provide. And to this day, verse 14, it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. When it comes to paying the ultimate price, the price of life, instead, life itself, the price of our sins, God will never demand it from us. Because he has paid it himself. He has provided a substitute. And what is this mountain? Mount Moriah. Look at the verse from Chronicles on your sheet. This is the mountain where Solomon would later build the temple. This is the mountain where thousands of animal sacrifices would be offered for the sins of God's people throughout the Old Testament. This is Mount Zion in Jerusalem. And so it's the same mountain where 2,000 years after Abraham the one and only son of God himself would climb the hill, staggering under the weight of the wood on his back. This is the mountain 
where God the Father did much, much more than he asked Abraham to do and actually offered up his own beloved son to pay for the sins of all who would trust in him. Where there was no substitute for Jesus, no ram, no last-minute reprieve, no voice from heaven, because he was the substitute. This is the mountain that we see in our hearts whenever we think of the cross. And we sing, How precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus to make me clean. And that is the blood that flowed for everything. Including all those times when we have failed to be an Abraham, including all those times when we have failed even to be one hundredth of an Abraham, when we have failed even to make the smallest sacrifice for us or for our children. That blood flowed. And so, as I said already, there is never any need for us to pay for our sins with our life or with the life of any other. It has been paid. So as we dwell the extraordinary trustworthiness of God, despite all the odds, it motivates us to take God at his word, even when that means costly sacrifices. Because we know the God whom we serve. We know that the ultimate price has been paid. We know that he knows the way out of the grave. Shall I pray? Heavenly Father, these are great and weighty matters. On this Sunday when we are already primed to think about sacrifice because of those who gave up their lives for us hundreds of years ago and in other conflicts. We are bowed down by the, the weight of what you ask of us, the faith you call us to. And yet, Lord, we know that you are good, that you are trustworthy, that you have proved your love for us, your commitment on the cross we're paying the ultimate sacrifice. And so, Lord, we gladly give up our lives, whatever you ask of us, and our families. We leave them in your precious hands, knowing that you will bring us through death into life eternal. Amen.